impeachment. What did the president know, and when did he know it? For only the second time in American history, Congress has passed the point of no return. You don't even have to be convicted of a crime to lose your job in this constitutional republic. If this body determines that your conduct as a public official is clearly out of bounds in your role. I'm Brian Boitler, and this is Rubicon. The House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment. The President of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. With these words, the framers of the Constitution gave the people, through their elected representatives, the power to protect the republic from presidents who violate their oath in egregious ways. They didn't take this step lightly. It's a big deal to throw a person with millions of supporters out of elected office. And for this reason, they erected steep hurdles to ending a presidency. It can't happen unless a majority of representatives and two-thirds of senators all agree that it must. When the House impeaches a president, then, it crosses a Rubicon into the most grave political fight a country can have. That's why the impeachment power has only been invoked against three presidents and has never actually been used to remove one. Andrew Johnson survived his Senate impeachment trial by one vote. The Senate acquitted Bill Clinton by a much wider margin. Richard Nixon, by contrast, saw the writing on the wall and resigned from office before the House had a chance to impeach him in the first place. And in truth, a functioning democracy shouldn't have to go through something as traumatic as a presidential impeachment very frequently. Because a functioning democracy shouldn't be electing crooked presidents on a regular basis. The framers left it to Congress to determine what constitutes impeachable offenses or high crimes and misdemeanors, but they provided clues. Treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Whatever high crimes and misdemeanors are, they include acts of profound national betrayal. Treason which is providing aid and comfort to the country's enemies. Bribery, which is using the power of the presidency for self-enrichment rather than in the country's best interests. These shouldn't be common crimes. And that brings us to Donald Trump. The 45th president of the United States entered office born to commit high crimes. Like every president, Trump took the oath of office. He vowed to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. But for a person like Donald Trump, that's easier said than done. Let's start with two particular clauses of the Constitution called the Emoluments Clauses. They prohibit the president from accepting payments beyond his or her official salary. I have a no conflict of interest provision as president. You're keeping your stake in Celebrity Apprentice. You're going to keep your stake in your real estate business. When I ran, everybody knew that I, I was a very big owner of real estate all over the world. I don't need promotion. <clears throat> I don't need promotion. Okay, but I was willing to do this for free, and they would have, it would have been the greatest G7 ever. They are arguing that this is not a violation of the Monuments Clause, where someone is profiting off of something. I believe Judge Anna Napolitano has a different notion of that. What do you think? Well, uh, Neil, it's not my notion; it's the Constitution's notion. When the Constitution does not attract, does not address profits, it addresses any present as in a gift, any emolument as in cash, of any kind whatever, I'm quoting the emoluments clause, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Prior modern presidents have all sold off their assets and placed the proceeds in blind trust, so they wouldn't even be tempted to distort public policy for personal gain. Trump didn't do that. In fact, 
Trump and his children own and license his name to hotels and golf courses around the world, which allows powerful people and foreign officials who hope to curry favor with him the opportunity to pay him cash simply by patronizing his businesses. One of those hotels is just down the street from the White House and has become a hub for executives, politicians, lobbyists, and foreign actors seeking special favors from the Trump administration. It's all pretty gross. Unlike all other modern presidents, Trump refuses to disclose his tax returns and other financial documents, so we don't know who pays him or who he's in debt to. So that was day one. Trump inaugurated a festival of greed and corruption. And as time went on, we learned more. Special counsel Robert Mueller concluded that the Trump campaign knew Russia had hacked his opponent to help him win the 2016 election. And when Trump infamously said, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Russian hackers went straight to work looking for them. When Trump told voters he had no business dealings with the Russian government, he was lying. While Russia was helping him in the election, he was negotiating a nine-figure real estate deal for a Trump Tower in Moscow. Different federal prosecutors concluded he'd committed campaign finance felonies by making undisclosed hush money payments to former mistresses, including the adult film star Stormy Daniels, so that they'd keep quiet until after the voters had gone to the polls. This is all to say Trump obtained the presidency through corrupt means and then went on to abuse his power for personal benefit whenever he could. He illegally obstructed Mueller's investigation. He sends himself, Vice President Mike Pence, and even the military to his resorts whenever he can and then promotes his properties on Twitter and on camera at the White House. That kind of self-dealing would land basically any other government official in prison. He's tampered with the neutral application of the law to harm his perceived enemies. He's ginned up violations of environmental laws, which he doesn't care about in any other context, to penalize California because he hates California. He's invoked antitrust laws arbitrarily to punish the parent company of CNN because he hates CNN. And he seemingly manipulated government procurement processes to make sure Amazon lost a huge federal contract because he hates its owner, Jeff Bezos. All of these offenses merit impeachment. It's an open and shut case. Except... Well, not so fast. First, when Trump's presidency began, Republicans controlled the three branches of government and they shielded him from accountability. At the same time, conservative news outlets like Fox News and others pumped out endless hours of pro-Trump propaganda to keep his supporters in the dark about the seriousness of the problem. Second, Democrats were really worried about the politics of impeachment. Impeachment is never off the table, but should we start there? I don't agree with that. We will get through this. Now, where it ends, I don't know. Uh, I presume it ends with uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump being voted out of office. The fear was that an aggressive impeachment inquiry would divide the country and make Trump appear sympathetic to moderates and swing voters, clearing his path to re-election. It was risk aversion. Why rock the boat when Trump was already historically unpopular? But then, something important happened. Today is more than about Democrats and Republicans. It's about restoring the Constitution's checks and balances to the Trump administration. Once the dust settles, Democrats will hold at least 222 seats in the House of Representatives. So what does that mean? On the map now, more than enough to get to the magic number, the ultimate number of 23. And then the question is, how, how much can the Democrats build from there once they get there? So you look at the map, and the, the thing that's striking about this, uh, Jake made the point earlier, there's no blue wave when it comes to the Senate. There's a lot of blue progress when it comes to governors. There is a blue wave when it comes to the House. 
So you're the Speaker of the House. What do you do if the president is on a crime spree, but you worry that impeaching him will backfire on your party politically? Well, you have to choose. The midterm elections place Democrats on a collision course with either Donald Trump or their oaths of office. And for many months, they avoided confronting the president whenever they could. When Mueller finished his report, which detailed all of Trump's efforts to obstruct his investigation, House Majority Whip James Clyburn called it, quote, a chapter that's closed and said Democrats would move on to a new chapter, health care. At times, it seemed Democrats were afraid that if they did aggressive oversight, they'd find a bunch of high crimes and have no choice but to do the thing they desperately wanted to avoid. And even when they did try to investigate Trump, he'd just instruct witnesses to defy their subpoenas because, hey, what are they going to do, impeach me? But that all changed in September. We are learning for the first time the full contents of a memo written by the whistleblower. The whistleblower complaint has been released, and it's a fairly remarkable document. An allegation of serious wrongdoing by the President of the United States. Is that not the subject of this complaint? Uh, uh, yes, that is the subject of the allegation. It describes the whistleblower's concerns that the president had abused his office to try to harm a political rival. The memo went on to say, the official who listened to the entirety of the phone call was visibly shaken by what had transpired and seemed keen to inform a trusted colleague within the U.S. national security apparatus. There is actions that are actions that are cover up. Yeah, when you take... When you have a system of electronic storage for information that is specifically for national security purposes, and you have something that uh, is self-serving to the president politically and decide it might not be, you might not want people to know, and you hide it someplace else, that's a cover-up. If you read this transcript in its entirety, I want you to do me a favor... That means I want you to do something for me. And what he is asking for is political dirt on Joe Biden. Trump's impeachable offenses have mounted for years. But there was something different about this one. He wasn't just settling scores and pocketing cash. After winning the 2016 election in part due to foreign interference, he got caught trying to solicit foreign interference again. And so Nancy Pelosi went to the podium and said this. This week... The president has admitted to asking the president of Ukraine to take actions which would benefit him politically. The, action of the, the actions of the Trump presidency revealed a dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. That statement broke the dam of Trump's obstruction, and in the weeks since, a parade of current and former Trump administration officials has marched up to Capitol Hill to tell the full story of the Ukraine shakedown, about how Trump ended up on the phone with the president of Ukraine, a man whose country might not survive without its U.S. ally, and said, I want you to do me a favor, though. And so this impeachment is about more than just one president, his lackeys, their criminal enterprise. It's about something deeper. It's about protecting the country from a president who places his needs and desires over the national interest. It's about preserving bedrock tenets of democracy. No one is above the law, and that liberty depends on our collective ability to choose our leaders in free and fair elections. On this show, 
Our guests and I will examine the impeachment of Donald Trump through that lens. We will untangle all the complicated facts, separate truth from lies, and never lose sight of the stakes. Because this fight is more important than which party wins which news cycle. It's about whether America's civic institutions are strong enough to overcome propaganda, partisan loyalty and cynicism, to recognize the threat that Donald Trump poses and face it head on. Which is why on our first episode, we've invited Matthew Miller, a Justice Department and Democratic campaign veteran, to help us look ahead to what it will mean if Trump is removed from office and what it will mean if he isn't. Matt Miller, thanks for being on Rubicon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so since this is our first episode, I wanted to take a minute and situate everyone listening. Um, we've launched this podcast about one month into the impeachment process. And by definition, this whole thing ends one of two ways, right? Either Trump is forced from office or he continues to serve, right? Um, and we were talking about this before we started recording, but one of the concerns I have had about this very fast-paced, tightly scoped impeachment that Democrats have begun is that it it kind of like it announces an expiration date, right? Like if Republicans can just hold on a couple more months, this will all be behind them, and then they and Trump can get back to all the criminal activity that they were up to <laughs> uh, before the impeachment started. Um, or at the very least, it removes this source of uncertainty for them. So I, I was wondering first if you share that concern. Um, a little, but I, I don't see another way forward other than to to move quickly. I, I think how you structure the impeachment and the uh, inquiry and the timing of it depends on what your ultimate objective is. Mm -hmm. If your objective is to, you know, sweep in the full, you know, scope of Trump's misconduct, everything from the Mueller report to not just Ukraine, but look, I I keep thinking about what he's doing with building the wall, where he's taking money that Mm wasn't appropriated for the wall. He's telling people, break the law, and if you do, I'll pardon you, which is a pretty impeachable offense. If you want to scope all of that in, you would go forever. And if you wanted to use the inquiry to, to harm him politically leading into the election, y- you would do that because you would keep having hearings and revelations and witnesses coming forward. But if you're playing for removal, mm-hmm. if, you're playing for, if your goal is removal from, from office, even if you don't think it, that's likely, but if you think there's a chance, 20 percent, 15, 30, whatever it is, I think the smartest thing is to go quickly because I, I do think there is an expiration date at which Republican votes in the Senate become less likely. Because Republicans will rally around this argument. You've already seen some of them making it, that it's an election year, 2020. We're getting too close to the voting. We're taking the decision out of voters' hands and putting it into our hands. I, you know, I think because his impeachable conduct relates to the election, I think that's a bogus talking point. But nevertheless, right. I don't get to decide what, what Republican senators think. And so I think if your real, real goal is removal, you have to go with the tightest case as quickly as possible to increase your chances that you get those votes. Well, okay, but there is a wealth of of bad acting between every impeachable offense Trump has committed um, and just Ukraine, right? And like if you if you characterize the Ukraine scandal as one of this kind of corrupt self-dealing that also like corrupts the election process and, and is cheating in the election basically, um, then you I mean you can you can like widen the aperture enough to include other aspects of Trump's presidency that are sort of abuse of power for his own personal gain, right? Like, I think that the obstruction of justice in the Mueller report is like that. I think that um, the emoluments violations, like setting travel and policy and priorities around where his resorts are, um, 
all are kind of of a same kind of abuse of power. Um, and then and then you're not talking about just an endless process, but basically saying, you know, you're, you're ring fencing the most severe abuses of power and saying, all right, Republicans, if Ukraine isn't enough, then then we're going to make you vote on these other things, too, which are indefensible. So that's one way to look at it is if Ukraine isn't enough, here are the other things. The other way to look at it is bringing other things in allows Republicans to muddy the waters and 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 defend things that they feel are more defensible. Uh, I, I think his con- the conduct described in the Mueller report, I mean, it was a crime. He obstructed justice. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear. If he wasn't president, he'd be indicted and I think would be convicted. But Republicans have been pretty comfortable defending him on the allegations in the Mueller report. They even have an actual constitutional argument. They have an argument on the substance. It's the argument Bill Barr makes. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have that on Ukraine. And you can tell the difference between the Mueller report uh, findings and what's happening here just by watching Republicans struggle with the question, is it okay for a president to pressure a foreign government to investigate his political opponents? They they still don't have an answer to that question. And it, and so I, I actually think it's smarter to keep the, the focus on this one thing where the substance is so clear and where they they themselves have shown they're pretty uncomfortable with the substance, yes. that keep it focused on that and just make them answer that straight up and down question. And look, if they want to say that's fine, then that's where we are. They'll keep they'll they'll keep him in office and they'll have to defend it at the ballot box. The reason I, I have this concern, like I, I see this terrible worst case scenario where impeachment is over by late this year or early next year and and that's it. Um and at that point, I think that that's like that's the end of oversight until the election. Like Trump will, he was shutting everything down before. He's trying to shut this down, but with impeachment behind him, he will shut everything down, right? And and meanwhile, his attorney general Bill Barr is is trotting the globe looking for any out of context detail he can find uh, to launch criminal investigations of Trump's enemies or delegitimize the Russia investigation or the Ukraine investigation. Which is like, A, it's impeachable conduct in its own right, um, potentially at least. And and also with, with impeachment over, like Dems will be sitting ducks because like there, it's very unlikely that there's going to be a second impeachment after this one's done. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think you are right about that. I think if, um, if, if impeachment happens but removal doesn't, if he survives a vote in the Senate, he's going to go back to where he was before, which is not cooperating. And, and he hasn't really been cooperating with this investigation. It's just that witnesses have been so either appalled by what they saw or worried about saving their own skin that witnesses have been coming forward and cooperating. Um, so I don't think that the White House has actually changed its posture. It's, it's witnesses. But I think, and I think they will go back to resisting oversight on everything else. That said, Democrats have teed up a bunch of court fights that take a long time, but they are starting to, you know, th- yeah. that time is starting to expire, right? We're getting to the point where we're getting court decisions that are going to weaken the, the White House's ability to resist oversight on everything else next year. Yeah. But I, but I will go back to uh, what I said before, which is if your strategic calculus is to use the oversight process through impeachment to keep the, pe- the president on the mat for as long as possible, then it probably does make sense to keep impeachment going. Um, but I just don't think that's their calculation. I th- and, and, I, I, and I think they're right. I think their calculation is maximize your chances of removal. And if you're playing for removal, uh, I come back to this, this, um, this point, which is I think you have to do it quickly. Right. So what about the election then, right? Like, can an election with Donald Trump on the ticket be free and fair or at least be perceived as free and fair by the majority of the public um, after what he's been caught doing? Uh, Look, 
I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I struggle with what the, the most of the public will think because they've been willing to tolerate a lot. Although I, I don't think the, you know, people talk about his base and his base is not as big as people think. His base is not a majority of the country. Right. He wasn't elected by a majority of the country. Um, but I, I do think, let, let's say he, you know, back to your original question, let's say he wins uh, and wins, the, wins isn't the right term. Let's say he survives impeachment. He's mm-hmm. not, not removed by the Senate. Uh, I think the troubling thing in the short term is that it gives him license to abuse his office however he wants exactly. to to get reelected. And it's not just pressure. I mean, it's hard to imagine a worse case than the one we see here where you're pressuring a foreign government and withholding money that's, that's critical to their security and ours. Um, but once you have essentially blessed that, and that's what they do, they'd say, they'd either say he did nothing wrong or he did something wrong, but it's not impeachable, meaning he can keep doing right. this and others. You've blessed him to, you know, I brought up this case of the wall, keep diverting money and telling people just break the law to build the wall because I need that for my reelection and I'll pardon you. You've blessed him to ask Bill Barr to investigate the Democratic nominee, which sounds crazy, but it's not. Right. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's already a, happening. It, it, yeah, it, in a way. It, it, you've asked, you know, you've blessed him to use military action all over the world. It's hard. I mean, I've tried to conduct this thought experiment a few times. Imagine something that Donald Trump wouldn't do to win re-election. Like imagine an abuse of power that's too great that he wouldn't take it. You can't imagine anything right. because he's not constrained by any norm or rule or law. He's only constrained by what he can get away with. And if he's told he can get away with anything he wants, he's going to do whatever he wants. Okay, so before Ukraine, there was this um, fairly common view in anti-Trump circles that, you know, as as dangerous as he is, it would be healthier for the country to drum him out of office at the polls rather than impeach and remove him. And I'm wondering um, where you land on that now, um, where you landed on that like before the Ukraine matter came around and, and if your feelings have changed, I, why? I, I do think it would be better for the country for Trump to lose in a massive landslide, to, to lose in, in an election. That would be the the way that would be hardest for his supporters to to contest, um, though they would I, he would find some reason why he was screwed. He still talks about the three million votes in California that you know the made up voter fraud that he claims caused him to lose the popular vote last time. That said, I I, I don't think we should wait for that. When a, you can't just look the other way to gross misconduct and abuse of power by the president because. You think that it's a better outcome for the voters to remove him. You have, if you're a senator or a me- member of, of the House, you've sworn an oath to do your constitutional duty, and so I think they, you know, th- their oath ought to require them to take this seriously and ought to require them to vote to remove him. Um, but there, there is there is a political argument that if you bring impeachment up and you make the best case, and it's pretty clear as it already is that he massively abused his power, violated his oath of office, committed a clearly impeachable act. And Republican senators vote to acquit him, then you've got a good argument to take to the voters against not just him, but against the entire corrupt Republican Party that's allowed him to exist and behave the way he has. That's a good note to end on. Um, Matt Miller, thank you for being with us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Glad to be your first guest. That's Rubicon for this week. We'll be back Friday, November 8th with more. But, you know, if the first month of impeachment has taught us anything, it's that it'd be really dumb to try to preview episodes. This story is moving way too fast, and it's full of surprise twists. But here are a couple things to keep in mind. On Wednesday, Democrats summon more witnesses to testify next week, including the White House's top national security lawyer, John Eisenberg. 
He's the one who tried to secret away the Ukraine call transcript on a classified server. And more importantly, former national security advisor, notorious right-wing maniac, Trump nemesis, the mustache of revenge, John Bolton has also been summoned to appear one week from today as we record this. Should be fun. Who knows? Maybe we'll have learned more about how extensively Trump has corrupted foreign policy. Maybe it's not just Ukraine. Wouldn't that be something? Okay, see you next time.